It's a distinguished privilege that we each are again granted to have this opportunity to assemble even as we are tonight. And may I state at the outset that we're again blessed with a host of visitors who've come our way. And I know that Larry made mention of that a moment earlier, but certainly all throughout the meeting from Sunday onward we have been mightily blessed by the presence of many from the surrounding congregations. And even tonight, some from the Pippin congregation, that distance where Denise and Brooklyn and I have the privilege to attend and worship, even they have come to be with us and we're so thankful for that, as well as all the other nearby congregations and visitors who have come to be with us this evening. It certainly is encouraging to us and we trust that it also will be for you. And also, might we again say, on behalf of my family and myself, the encouragement that you continue to be to us not only in the way spiritual, but also in the marvelous meal that you've prepared for us tonight. We, as well as all those in attendance, I'm sure, very much enjoyed that. And it's a good time of fellowship and also a good time of just encouraging each other. During the course of this lectureship series, we have been giving some consideration to those troubling compromises of the church. Those matters that the church continues to face and those matters that often are waging great warfare and problems for it. On Sunday morning, for example, we looked at the matter of relativism, in which many have come to think that they can determine for themselves what is truth and what is not, and in that regard they thus simply wish to do what they choose and feel that God will be accepting of it. We learned, did we not, that there is no relativism taught in the Bible. It is indeed only God's way that He accepts. It is only His will that He considers notable and noble to His side. And then we looked at the age of the earth and found that there is another area in which great compromise can often take place. We learned that despite the claims of science, earth isn't nearly as old as what most scientists would be willing to admit. However, that compromise is a bedrock for evolution and thus that is a thoroughfare that leads to much other compromise. Sunday night we looked at the matter of denominationalism and found that there's another avenue in which the church faces compromise. The church, in fact, is not a denomination. The Lord never built a denomination. He built His body, the church, and it stands alone as the pristine organization through which one appreciates the spiritual blessings available from God. And then last night, we looked at the matter of marriage, divorce, and remarriage, noting again the interesting features concerning that teaching in the Bible, and also seeing in that 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 is another way in which brethren are tempted to compromise, to in fact not stand as firm as Jesus did in Matthew 19.9, but rather for the sake of harmony and unison, to simply allow that teaching to fall by the wayside. But in each of these instances, we've been reminded that God's Word does remain supreme. And in John 12, 48, we are reminded of this. He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my word hath one that judgeth him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. And thus it is that we shall be judged by the contents of the Holy Scriptures. It thus behooves us to ever live our life in such a way that it is in compliance with that powerful and pure teaching of the Word of God. It is tonight that we will come to yet another area in which compromise is easily to take place. And we must be on guard, ever ready to defend the truth of God against the teaching of premillennialism. We shall attempt over the next few moments this evening not only to survey the principal teachings of it, 
but also to be aware from the Word of God what the Scriptures teach about the end of time. And in that regard, to remind ourselves that so often what man proclaims is far, far removed from what the Bible teaches about that event. And may we be quick to say that this issue of premillennialism is not just a theological matter that has no consequences. As we shall learn from time to time this evening, what one feels about the teaching of the end of time will have a great bearing upon one's viewpoint toward earth and his relationship and association to it. And so it is, as we give thought to that, here are some brief introductory thoughts, which we have in part summarized, but it is to that middle one that I would draw your attention, at least briefly in passing. If you and I compromise on the teaching, for instance, of premillennialism, it will be much easier to compromise on other matters taught sacredly in the Word of God, and thus compromise on any of them is a thoroughfare into greater and greater areas of unfaithfulness. In other words, all the truth that God has revealed, be it related to this subject or any other, we must give the greatest earnest and the greatest diligence to in fact pursue that truth of God. It is in that light that I would use these features to perhaps begin our centralized discussion. Isn't it true that the subject of the end of time, last things, if you will, is an exceedingly popular topic. It seems as if when certain individuals write a book that deals with the end of time, it skyrockets to the top of the bestseller list. Perhaps you're familiar with that set of books written by Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins. That set of books that's called the Left Behind series. Maybe you've seen them in bookstores. That said is now, if I understand it right, advanced through 15 volumes. They keep writing more and more because each of the preceding ones has been so popular. And as soon as a new one is released, there's a great interest in it and it seems that in many instances it sells out. That set of books has sold over 43 million copies. Suffice it to say, the human family is interested in the end of time. It is captivating, it's enthralling. What it sets forth, at least in those books, is of great interest to so many people. However, that's just the tip of the iceberg. You might in fact notice that many of the televangelists if you happen to flip through television channels and watch, or at least even for a few moments, many of the presentations of some of the most notable preachers, you will find that one of the central features of their preaching is the end of time. They can often present it in such a fantastic, speculative way. It is sensational to the core. And as such, it captivates the audience mightily. As you and I give thought to the end of time and to the teaching of the Bible concerning it, let's set the stage for the rest of our discussion by considering the overall scheme of premillennialism. It is safe to say that this word premillennialism, there are a variety of particular doctrines related to it, but most of them will revolve around these features that we're about to discuss. As you give thought to them, I would ask you to just think for yourself how often you have heard something that relates very closely to one or more of these. The word premillennialism, though it's a long word, really means something simple. The prefix pre, P-R-E, means before. That word millennium is Latin for 1,000. And ISM just means doctrine or teaching. 
And thus, the word premillennialism describes and discusses the doctrine that Christ will come back before the supposed 1,000-year reign upon earth. And with that as the introduction, notice the way that this incredible hierarchy of matters is built around it. Those who subscribe to premillennialism, in fact, hold to one or more of these, and in many instances, many of them. First of all, the Old Testament kingdom prophecies, so we are told, pointed directly to an earthly, physical kingdom. We understand so easily that David and Solomon and others in the Old Testament reigned over physical Israel. However, embedded in the Old Testament are many prophecies that pointed long down the stream of time from that perspective. And those who subscribe to premillennialism tell us supposedly those prophecies had their fulfillment or will do so only in an earthly, physical kingdom. But not only that, they are quick to say that actually Jesus came to fulfill those prophecies. That is to say, in their mind, the Lord came to this earth to establish and to set up a physical kingdom over which He would reign as King. However, He encountered a problem that He did not expect. The Jews rejected Him, so we are told. And in that rejection of Him, He was unable to fulfill those prophecies at that time and in essence to establish that kingdom. And hence, He postponed that fulfillment. He postponed the fulfillment of those kingdom prophecies. And what He did as an afterthought, or maybe we should say as a plan B, so that He wouldn't have to admit total defeat, He established the church instead. And thus, in this scheme, the church is really simply an afterthought. It is a fly-by-night temporary arrangement to simply save face because the Jews rejected our Savior. You can begin to see in this particular appreciation that premillennialism has some interesting things in it, doesn't it? But we have more, in fact, that needs to be said. You can well imagine that in this scheme it continues to say that of course right now we live in this age in which the church does exist. But they are quick to point out that those kingdom prophecies in their mind are yet to be fulfilled and thus there's coming a time when in fact evil shall abound greatly. The world is going to sink lower and lower into ungodliness and it will sink further and further into greater levels of iniquity and as that begins to happen, this particular figure, political in character, will arise, called the Antichrist. Supposedly this figure, whoever he shall be, will be a remarkably persuasive individual able to deceive multiplied billions so that the world in great fancifulness and interest will follow him. He'll be able to make them do anything that he wishes for them to do. It is in that regard... And it is in that light that supposedly Jesus will then make a secretive return. In that secretive return known as the rapture, maybe you've heard that term, supposedly Jesus will appear secretly. The only ones that will be aware of it directly are the saints. They will be whisked away in which they will in fact dwell out elsewhere with the Lord for some period of time. And as the times here on earth roll forward, it's easy to appreciate that with all the saints and with all the godly individuals gone, that which is left behind will be a torrent of ungodliness. 
The world will reek in sin and iniquity. As you can well imagine, this ushers in a period of seven years. This period known as the tribulation period, or the tribulation era, it is during this time supposedly two things in particular will take place. For the first three and a half years of that period, the Jews in mass will return to Jerusalem, rebuild the temple, and put in place again the various worship of the Old Testament era. Animal sacrifices, other things related to that. In essence, they will go back to the Mosaic era in terms of their worship, and that kind of system will again be put in its place. During the second three and a half years of that seven-year period, the evil will abound to an even greater degree. The Antichrist will gain such power that in fact Jesus will now return. As he does so near the end of that seven years, he will defeat the Antichrist, so we are told, at the battle of Armageddon. And as he does that, that will defeat forever that Antichrist and he will then usher in a period of 1,000 years of peaceful, joyous, prosperous reign over earth based in Jerusalem as his capital. It is, we are told, in that event that the kingdom prophecies of the Old Testament will finally be fulfilled. Let me again say, all that I have said to that point has been what premillennialists tell us. We, in just a few moments, will begin to look at what the Bible says about this. But I thought first it would be wise just to remind ourselves what premillennialism actually teaches. As you can see, after that period of a thousand years, at this point, we can now appreciate there will be another resurrection, this time of the wicked. Following that will be the actual final judgment before God Himself. And then there will be eternity, either in heaven or in hell a very interesting and speculative set of teachings, isn't it? Now, please, note the following with me. There isn't a single element of any of that that's true. None of it. Despite what is so often written in these books, articles, magazine documentaries, whatever we see on television, and many TV shows present this in part, it simply is not biblical truth. It is a figment of men's imaginations. Over the remainder of the lesson tonight, we will in fact assure ourselves of that by opening this book, which is the truth of God, and let it answer not only part, but all of what you and I have just discussed. It is in that regard. Might I point out a rather scary feature at the bottom of that slide? A large percentage of people accept this. They believe it to be true. According to a rather recent poll, 59% of Americans subscribe in part or in whole to premillennialism. As if that isn't shocking enough, you'll notice that roughly three out of every four who claim to be Christians accept in one part or another the features of premillennialism. Isn't that a frightening spectacle? Isn't that a rather scary appreciation? Three out of four on average accept this to be true. Let's do a much better job than what we have done. There clearly are no scriptures to back up what we've said so far, for that is not found in the Bible. Let's now open the Bible and let it discuss for us the matters of premillennialism. As we do that, I will attempt to address them point by point in the same way and in the same order that we just considered them. 
Let's begin then in the following way. What about those kingdom prophecies of the Old Testament? Those prophecies that you and I mentioned earlier that the premillennialists claim pointed to a physical earthly kingdom and the same kingdom that they claim Jesus actually came to establish. Might I invite your thinking to Psalm 89 beginning in verse 35. Continuing basically through the remainder of that chapter, God in fact highlights the greatness of the Davidic kingdom, but He clearly states that down the stream of time from David's era, there would be another king that would arise. And this king would be entirely great, monumental and marvelous in his efforts. Nowhere in that was there any statement that it would be a physical kingdom. Nowhere in that was a statement by God that this would be a kingdom located on earth with all of the richness of earth backing it. As you can also see with me in Luke 1.32, this was of course on the very occasion of the conception of our Lord in the womb of Mary. On that occasion when the angel appeared to her, speaking of that babe that would be born to Mary, the angel said, He shall be great, and He shall be called the Son of the Highest. As description of this, His kingdom was given, He expressly said this to Mary, Of His kingdom there shall be no end. Now might we give some thought. All earthly kingdoms come and they go. Even the greatest kingdoms of the ancient era, like the Roman Empire, the Greek Empire, the Babylonian Empire, yea, even the Persian Empire, all of them had their heyday, but they waned away into the dustbins of history. But this kingdom, of which the angel told Mary, would be a kingdom that would stand forever. It was not to be a temporary arrangement. It was not to be a mere feature that would last for a few years or even a few centuries. Of His kingdom there would be no end. That is not the description of a physical kingdom. It was a spiritual kingdom. And as if that weren't enough, in John 18, 36, Jesus, the Son of God Himself, said, My kingdom is not of this world. How much plainer could the Savior have been? Had it been His attempt and His desire to establish an earthly kingdom, He could have done it. But there in the very shadow of the cross, He said, My kingdom is not of this world. Isn't it interesting in John 6, 15, on that occasion, the Lord had already gained sufficient popularity that there were those ready to take Him and make Him a king. Had He wanted to be a king, there was His opportunity. However, the text says He went into the wilderness. It was not the Lord's mission in coming to this earth to be a physical king. Yes, He would be a spiritual king reigning over spiritual Israel, but an earthly king He was not to be. My kingdom is not of this world. And thus, this opening plank of premillennialism is found to be false. Let's look at another. We notice that the premillennialists tell us that the rejection of Jesus by the Jews was a surprise to Him. That when He came to earth, He anticipated that they would follow Him in droves and that He would be selected as their earthly leader. However, the rejection of Jesus was by no means a surprise. Think of just a few of the Old Testament prophecies that clearly foretold that He would be rejected. I would ask you to consider with me 
Isaiah chapters 50 and 53. In the midst of that great major prophet, we find Isaiah having been told by God that a number of punishments would come upon the Messiah, the one who would come and be the leader of God's spiritual kingdom. Was he to be rejected? Absolutely. In chapter 53, we read particularly in the first six verses that he would be afflicted, he would be wounded, he would be beaten, not for himself, but for our stripes and for our iniquities. And we read later he'd be put to death. In Psalm 22, it is said he'd be pierced, a prelude to the crucifixion, when that Roman soldier thrust his spear through the gentle side of Christ. In John 19, verse 34. Isn't it easy to see that the rejection of Jesus was no surprise. He knew it was coming. When He entered this world, He knew as He grew older that ultimately the cross was in His future. In fact, more than once, He even told His disciples, I am going to Jerusalem and there I shall in fact be put to death by the Gentiles. Luke 18, verses 31 to 34. Thus, the second plank in this premillennial theory is false. It simply doesn't hold up to scriptural revelation. But what about yet a third one? They also are quick to tell us that because of the Jewish rejection of the Christ, He set up the church as an afterthought. Such is not the case. The church was in the eternal mind of God long, in fact, before the human family was ever even created. In Ephesians 3, beginning in verse 10, we have this description. It says, To the intent that now, and to the principalities and powers in heavenly places, might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God, according to the eternal purpose which He purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. It is thus there said that the church fulfills that eternal purpose which God purposed through the Christ. That word eternal, of course, means everlasting. It was the intent and desire of God that manifested in the church would be the means for human redemption, the means for man to be reconciled unto God. That means the church was no fly-by-night arrangement. And doesn't that indicate today how special and how respectful we should be of the church? As we are gathered here tonight with the Montrose congregation, how blessed we are to be able to, in fact, fellowship with God in this way, to have fellowship one with another in this way, and to carry forth that blessed arrangement defined in this book. The church, my friend, is an eternal arrangement. As if all of that isn't enough. You might notice one of the things asserted in this premillennial arrangement, the fourth element on that slide, the signs that the premillennialists tell us will herald the next coming of Jesus. Isn't it interesting and in some ways even humorous to stand in a checkout line at the grocery store or Walmart and to read the latest prophecy about the signs and how that it means the Lord's coming is so close and so imminent. They talk about wars and earthquakes and what's happening in Russia and Israel and Iran. And in fact, since 1988, there have been one statement after another that the end must be close. All the signs are pointing to the near end of time, we're told. What signs are they talking about? What signs is there that supposedly herald the next coming of our Savior? 
Those who subscribe to this tell us there are signs in this book somewhere. Let's look at a few verses to help us understand more deeply this consideration. I have pointed out to you Matthew 24 beginning in verse 44. You'll notice in that passage, in the midst of this particular discussion, Jesus speaks about the fact that no signs will be given. Now that harmonizes well with some of the other statements He had given previously. It was on another occasion that when the Jews asked Him for a sign, He said, no sign shall be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah, according to Matthew 12. But now you'll notice, in this particular case, in the very midst of those hours not long before the crucifixion, Jesus pointed out there were some signs in that chapter given, but they were given for the destruction of Jerusalem. Perhaps you remember them. He said, it's better to not be pregnant. It's better that this not happen on the Sabbath. It's better that it not happen in the winter. Now might we ask, what difference will it make if one is pregnant or not when the second coming of our Savior takes place? What difference will it make if it happens to fall on a Saturday or not? What difference will it make if it happens to be in January or not? The point is the Lord in that passage, this is Matthew 24 verses 1 to 35, was discussing the destruction of Jerusalem. And those those passages about being pregnant and being on Saturday and being in the winter were all in that portion of that chapter. But there is a great division that occurs in verses 34 to 36. Specifically Jesus said in verse 34, All these things shall be accomplished in this generation. That was the generation to which he was speaking on that occasion. They would live to see Jerusalem destroyed. But beginning in verse 36, the Lord is discussing something different. You'll notice that this time he says, there are no signs with respect to this event. What event? His second coming. Let's look at Mark 13, 32 to place the icing upon that discussion. In Mark 13, 32, Jesus specifically said, But of that day and that hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels, neither the Son, but the Father. Isn't that amazing? Here was the Son of God Himself saying that there are no signs going to be given relative to my second coming. He said not even the angels know when it is. Not even I know, Jesus said at this point, when it is. Only the Father. So maybe, may we be quick to say this. If any human being has figured out some signs, they have figured out more than Jesus ever knew, and they figured out more than the angels know, it is utter nonsense to think that any human being could figure out what the Savior could not Himself discern. There are no signs going to be given of the second coming. We read, in fact, in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 2, that Jesus there speaking through Paul said, It shall be as a thief in the night. There will be no signs given. Thieves do not ride ahead and tell you when they're coming. They don't call ahead and let you know, I'll be there at 10 past 10 this Saturday night. A thief comes in as quietly, as innocently, and as deceptively as possible. There will be no signs of the Lord's second coming. That means we must always be ready. For there will be no time to make preparation. To be ready, we must stay ready. 
another plank of premillennialism falls to the ground. Let's look at another. They speak about a rapture event. And in that, you'll appreciate, we discussed it earlier. Maybe you've seen the bumper stickers on the back of cars that says, in event of rapture, driver will disappear. In event of rapture, pilot will be gone from an airplane. May we ask, will there be any event called a rapture? Will there be an event likened unto this premillennial scheme of a rapturous event? In 1 Thessalonians 4.16, we have the word of the Apostle Paul in address to that matter when he himself says, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God. And then the dead in Christ shall rise first. A rather simple and yet humble pronouncement. But did you notice three things in it? Shout, voice of the archangel, trump of God. This will not be a secretive event. All, in fact, will be very aware of when our Savior returns. Note again, shout, voice of the archangel, trump of God, and so much so that in Revelation 1, verses 5 through 7, the inspired writer there declared that every eye shall see Him, even the ones that pierced Him. Oh, you and I must not believe there will be a secretive, rapturous event, for the Bible teaches the exact opposite. It will not just be some event that the saints will understand and participate in. Every eye, be they wicked or be they godly, every eye shall see Him. What's more, we now have seen yet another plank in premillennialism utterly fall and collapse to the ground. There is going to be no rapture. But yet what's more, what about the appreciation of these numerous resurrections? Do you remember that in this premillennial scheme, there is supposedly a resurrection of the righteous dead at the rapture. And then, seven years later, there's another resurrection on the occasion of the Lord's defeat of the Antichrist. And then there's another resurrection at the end of the thousand years. At least three resurrections in the premillennial nonsense. What did Jesus state in John 5, verses 28 and 29? He said, Marvel not at this. For the hour is coming when all that are in the grave shall hear His voice and shall come forth. They that have done good unto the resurrection of life and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. And there we have it. The Lord said both righteous and ungodly will be resurrected in the same hour. Not separated by seven years. Not separated by a thousand and seven years. One more plank of premillennialism is utterly destroyed. Isn't it remarkable the extent to which the fancy of men's minds will go to uphold some doctrine that they consider to be good and captivating and appealing, all the while it's absolutely condemned in the Word of God? Inasmuch as we have looked at all of these, what might we say about this Antichrist? Isn't it amazing how captivating the Antichrist topic can be? Within my lifetime and yours, you and I have heard many people identified as a potential antichrist. Henry Kissinger, at one point, was declared to be a potential antichrist. We remember Adolf Hitler. We remember Joseph Stalin. Leonid Khrushchev. And believe it or not, some have even called George Bush the same. Call it as you will. 
Are any of these individuals the Antichrist of which the Holy Scriptures speak? If you and I will read the only verses in all the Bible that make mention of this Antichrist, we will easily answer that question. The writer John is the only one who ever mentions the Antichrist by name. And he does so four times. We find it in two places. In 1 John 2 verse 18, 1 John 2 verse 22, 1 John 4 verses 1 through 3, and then again in the book of 2 John verses, verses 5, 6, and 7. If we look particularly at the passages that I've listed on the screen, what do these indicate about the Antichrist? Among other things, this is the interesting teaching. The writer there informs us, even so now there are many Antichrists. May we lay a bit of emphasis on that. John said the Antichrist is not some singular distant figure of history that will appear a few thousand years from the time he wrote. He said there are Antichrists now at the time he was writing. And notice he said plural, not just one. There were many of them. Those who thus think there is a singular individual someday to be called an Antichrist have misread the text. There is not some singular person yet to come who will be recognized as the Antichrist. There were Antichrists when John was living. And furthermore, the name suggests those who deny either directly or indirectly the deity of the Master, the deity of the Son of God. Any person, any person, who directly or indirectly refuses to confess Him and denies His deity may rightly be called an Antichrist. That person is against Christ. One more plank of premillennialism has fallen to the ground. As we give thought to what's on the next slide, perhaps it would be in order to more carefully consider one of the aspects of the land promise. Do you remember that I mentioned supposedly the Jews will return and construct a temple in Jerusalem. And there, Jesus will come back and He will begin to reign from that place. In their thinking, the Jews are entitled to Jerusalem. It is theirs by divine right from heaven. In fact, today, there is a Zionist movement that is incredibly powerful. If you wish to know more about it, just search on Google for the Zionist movement. You'll be shocked at the number of organizations that are supporting this financially with the event and intent that this whole premillennial scheme is real. They're looking forward to the day they can go back to Jerusalem and worship in that temple offering sacrifices of animal character. What does the Bible say about the land promise? I've listed a number of passages for you. I would only invite you to look at the one in Joshua 21 verses 43 to 45. In that singular passage, we can lay to rest easily this land promise. It is true that God told Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 that I will give to your seed this land. And one chapter later, He said, Look to the north and to the south and to the east and to the west. Everywhere your eye sees, I'll give it to your seed. God did make that promise. The question now comes, when did He fulfill it? Or has He yet fulfilled it? Again, the premillennialists tell us it hasn't yet been fulfilled. It's waiting for the day when Jesus will reign from that place. 
that's not what Joshua 21, however, says. In that passage, he explicitly says, The Lord gave Israel all the land He ever promised to give them. Past tense verb. By the time the book of Joshua reached its conclusion, all the promise of land God had ever promised to Abraham had already been fulfilled. We aren't waiting for some supposed millennium. This promise was fulfilled thousands of years ago. When the children of Israel left Egyptian bondage, wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, and entered the promised land, conquered it and divided it amongst them, that's when God fulfilled that promise. Thus, one more element in premillennialism falls to the ground. You might notice the tribulation issue. We said the premillennialists teach us there's seven years of tribulation. There's really only three passages in all the Bible to which they turn for that thinking. One of them is in Jeremiah chapter 30. One of them is in Matthew 24. And another they find inched into Revelation chapter 20. The strongest one by far for them is the Matthew, Matthew 24 passage. And yet in it, we've already learned tonight that in the first 35 verses of that chapter, the Lord is discussing Jerusalem's destruction, not the end of time. Thus, this has nothing to say about a tribulation era, a tribulation period. And one more time, a plank of premillennialism is found to be faulty. Following that, you'll notice the battle of Armageddon next comes before us. That word is found in but one passage in all of God's book, Revelation 16, 16. In the midst of this discussion, we find this gigantic battle between good and evil, between heaven and hell, between God and Satan. And in the concourse of that battle, we find that, of course, good wins, as it always will in the final analysis. But in the midst of that passage, we do read about this battle that takes place in a place called Armageddon. What did John the Revelator mean when he made mention of that? In the midst of this rather figurative passage, we find a few powerful hints to the actual meaning of that word. The word really means the hill of Megiddo. If you and I retrace the appearance of Megiddo throughout the Old Testament, there were some impressively great things that took place there. For instance, we find in Judges chapters 4 and 5 that that is where Deborah and Barak ultimately had great battle and victory for the cause of God. On a sad note though, later we find that there's where beloved Josiah met his death. That king Josiah that did so much good for ancient Judah. Thus, this was a place that was known for great good as well as for great evil. Great conquests for God happened there, but also great defeats for what would have been God's cause also took place. What is John helping us see here? In this battle between good and evil, in this battle between right and wrong, God and Satan, heaven and hell, there are going to be those that will experience great victory because they're on the side of the good. And there will also be those in the same battle who, in fact, will experience tremendous defeat because they're opposing the, the Master Himself. That passage does not refer to a literal battle. On a literal battlefield in the plain of Megiddo just north of Jerusalem. That's not the point. The point is there is this great battle and God is going to win.
And in this battle in which we see in that same chapter, things come out of frogs' mouths. And we see lying prophets and we see other interesting events. Do you think really we can suddenly take this battle as literal when we know to take everything else as figurative? This is a figurative description of God's great defeat of, of the devil. And in that description we find there will be great defeat for all of the devil's henchmen, all of those who follow him, but there shall be great and eternal victory for those who resist the devil, flee from him, and draw near unto God. One more plank in premillennialism is found to be faulty. Beyond Armageddon, what about the thousand-year reign of Christ? Some cling so tenaciously to this literal thousand-year reign in Jerusalem. It's interesting, isn't it, that that too is not a true statement. A thousand-year reign literally in Jerusalem? I would ask you to just briefly note a few of those things that I have listed there for us to consider. We could retrace this as far back as Daniel and find easily that this too is not a correct matter. I would hastily point out the prophecies, however. The third row there in that listing of ideas. Believe it or not, there are actually some Old Testament prophecies that absolutely preclude premillennialism. That is to say, if these prophecies are correct, premillennialism must be wrong. One of them is Jeremiah 22.30. In that singular passage, we learn the inspired prophet declaring that Write this man childless. The man of whom he was referring was Coniah. Write this man childless, for no seed of him shall ever reign in Jerusalem, in Judah, again. Let's give some thought briefly to what that says. Coniah was one of the kings of ancient Judah. If we turn to Matthew 1 verse 12, we will find that Jesus is in the lineage of Coniah. Thus, that means that since no descendant of Coniah would ever reign in Jerusalem again, and since Jesus is of the lineage of Coniah, He cannot possibly reign in Jerusalem if the Bible is right. Thus, we know from that passage alone that premillennialism and this thousand-year reign is just a figment of men's imaginations. Right, this man childless, no descendant of Jeconiah, known as Coniah, ever would reign in Jerusalem again. Since Jesus is of his descendancy, Jesus cannot possibly reign in Jerusalem if Jeremiah was right. Beyond that, you can notice that passages in Zechariah, in which it was said Jesus simultaneously would reign as priest and king. But yet the premillennialists tell us that he's reigning today as priest but he's not going to reign as king until he comes back for the thousand years. Thus they have them separated, but Zechariah said he would reign both at the same time as priest and king. Isn't it easy to see that one more element in premillennialism is false? As we stated near the outset of this lesson, there isn't a single truthful statement in all of the premillennial matters. I suppose after having looked at all of this so negatively for so long, one of the things that we can then easily do as we draw near the close of our lesson tonight is to cast it in the positive light. If premillennialism is not the biblical scheme for the end of time, what does the Bible say about the end of time? 
Well, first of all, we have refuted completely every element of premillennialism. And we have learned the lesson that those figurative passages in Revelation, in Ezekiel, in other places, we must carefully interpret so that we do not speak where God has not spoken. But with that in mind, Revelation 20 is the place where we will make our final statement before we conclude our lesson with the positive elements of the end of time. In Revelation 20, we find a mention of this thousand-year reign. But it's not what the premillennialists tell us. This thousand years, you see, is this marvelous reign with Christ and His saints. And it takes place as a benefit, as the marvelous wonder of those who have tied on to God and not given in to the dragon, those who have not given in to the devil. You and I, you see, enjoy this thousand years beginning at the time we become Christians. And it is a marvelous benefit and joy to consider that we are in fact laborers with God in His kingdom. 1 Corinthians 3 verses 9 and 10. It is with all that said that these statements we will use to simply and conclusively close our lesson tonight. What's going to happen at the end of time? What's going to happen on those events when Jesus returns? First of all, we are now living in the last days. We learned that from Acts 2, verse 17. There will never be another period, another epoch, another era religiously following this one. It is the last days. And that which terminates it will be the return of Jesus. It will not be a secretive return. Every eye shall see Him, Revelation 1, verses 5 through 7. And when He comes back again, it will be with a trump of God, with the voice of the archangel, with a great shout. We learn, of course, the dead in Christ shall rise first, 1 Thessalonians 4.16. And we, as those who are the Christians, of course, we will rise to meet Him in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. He's not going to even set foot on this planet again. In fact, on that occasion when He returns, you notice this general resurrection is described in John 5, verses 28 and 9. And when that resurrection takes place, Hades will be emptied because those spirits will again inhabit bodies that have been raised. And at that point, all, of course, shall stand before the judgment bar of God. You notice on that occasion, this earth will be destroyed. 2 Peter 3, verses 10 and 11. Isn't it amazing? The premillennialists tell us that there's going to be a rain here for a thousand years and it's going to be a utopian, pristine place. The Bible says it's going to be destroyed. Every element of it. These things seem so simple when we view them from this light. But as we've already noticed, following that resurrection, every single individual will stand before God in judgment. Everybody. Nobody will be exempt. Nobody will avoid it. Nobody will evade it. Everyone will be judged according to the deeds done in the body. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10, Revelation 22 verse 12. As you can well imagine, following that resurrection and that judgment, all that remains is eternity. For those who are on the right, heaven will be the reward. For those on the left, it will be hell. There will be no arguing with God, for His judgment will be right. You and I, by the way that we live, are determining right now what our sentence will be. We are right now etching into the very mind of God what will be our faith on that occasion. 
Where do you stand right now? Are you living with confidence, knowing that your name is in the book of life, and that when the Lord returns or you pass away in death, that you, in fact, will be ready to hear Him say, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Matthew 25, 21. Or are you on the other side of that coin? One who right now you know that things are not well with your soul. You know that you are not in a saved condition. There may be one of two reasons as to why that could be. Maybe you've never rendered obedience initially to the cause of Christ. If that would be the case in your life, and yet you know that Jesus died for you, and you know what the plan of salvation entails, why do you delay? Why do you wait? Times are too dangerous. Times are too risky. We do not know when Jesus will return. If tonight we could be of assistance to you, these baptismal waters are ready. You simply need to believe with all your heart Jesus is the Son of God, John 8, 24. You need to repent of the sins in your life, Luke 13, 5. You must confess Jesus' name as the Son of God, Matthew 10, verses 32 and 33. And you must be baptized for the remission of sins, Acts 2, 38. If we could assist you in that, we would find it greatly enjoyable and you would find it turning for eternity. If, however, you have become a member of the body of Christ but have not been faithful, you have done any number of things that have brought reproach and shame on the cause of Christ, and others are aware of this, you need to let them know that you are making a determined change. You are repenting of that which you have in the past done and been. And you're proceeding from this point forward with all the energy and zeal to live for the cause of Christ. If we could pray on your behalf tonight for your forgiveness, to God, of course, we would be more than honored. It would be our joy. We would only ask that you would let us know in what way we could be of assistance if either of these would be your need. While together we stand and while we sing.